Hello everybody. Today we're going to be doing chapter 23 of S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History. I'll be doing commentary on that. Hi, hi. Uh, before we get started though uh, with today's session, I did want to uh, give a little preface, um, set things up a little, because uh, I find that there's a misunderstanding that many Americans and indeed Westerners have living in the modern age and in understanding the time of the Reformation and the time of Luther. Hey, Ryan. Uh, and the misunderstanding that modern people have is basically this. We live in a time when you pick your own religion. Uh, to a certain extent, your religious views are shaped and molded by the culture that you're born in and your family, but you aren't forced, in most cases, to choose a religion. And the state and uh, religion do not work hand in glove. They are not part of the same monolithic structure. This was not the case at the time in the Reformation. In the time of the Reformation, the country um, was expected to have, I mean, on, in Western Europe, up until the Reformation, we need to understand that your only choice um, was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you could be a Jew, but you were going to be heavily persecuted. Uh, you could also be a Muslim to a certain extent, but again, you were going to be heavily persecuted. So, being uh, what your religious affiliation was, was uh, determined by the place that you were born. It really was. And so when the Reformation comes in, the issue becomes individual princes get to choose whether or not uh, they are Protestant or Catholic. Now, the Pope doesn't like that at all. He wants, obviously, everybody to be Catholic. And uh, in many cases, um, the overlord of a particular area, like the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor who controlled Germany, even though he was uh, Habsburg from Spain, he didn't like that either. So uh, wars are going to break out. But one thing you need to understand, you didn't get to choose your religion. Uh, your religion was chosen for you. And if you didn't go along, let's say you were born in a Protestant area uh, in Germany. The prince had already decided that the area was going to be Lutheran. Well, if you decided that you were going to be, say, an Anabaptist, or you were going to be Reformed, you were going to be persecuted as well. You're a dissenter from the official religion. You are practicing an illegal religion, and therefore you are going to be heavily persecuted. It's interesting, one of the, um, and this is an aside, obviously, but one of the reasons why I find that uh, many Westerners do not understand a lot of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and what's going on right now is that to a certain extent this is a religious war. Uh, Putin has worked uh, for his entire time in office, and that started, you know, in 1999, his, uh, his uh, autocracy there. Uh, has worked with the Russian Orthodox Church, which is very much a, uh, a power that supports the state and is supported by the state. Uh, to a, a great extent, uh, the, ex the extension of the control of Russia in an area is also the extension of the control of the Russian Orthodox Church and the persecution of independent churches. So, for instance, in the Donbass and Crimea regions, there were tons of Baptist churches uh, that had been planted there, uh, some before the fall of the Soviet Union, but uh, others after the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the opening up of uh, the East to uh, uh, non-Russian missionaries and so on. So there were, you, uh, long story short, the Baptists had planted a lot of churches and seminaries in that particular area. When the Russians moved into those areas and occupied them, uh, those churches were shut down, those seminaries were shut down, and they, they, they're heavily persecuted because Russia... Uh, as Christian, evangelical Christianity is persecuted in Russia because Russia wants to be a one-religion state. They only want 
uh, they want only Russian Orthodoxy to apply, or or atheism, nothing at all. You know, most. Uh, it's not to say that most Russians are fiercely Russian Orthodox in their practice. Uh, most Russians do not attend church, but it's a it's a national thing, and so religion at this time as well that we're talking about was a national thing. Uh, if you were um, from this area, you were Roman Catholic. If you were from this area, you were Lutheran, and that was uh, the way of it. So, and that continued on through history for quite some time. Uh, it was only really uh, began to be broken up with the, in the age of revolution in the 19th century, and with uh, obviously in America. But even in America, uh, if you were from a certain state uh, within the colonies, it was expected that you were going to follow uh, a certain religion or be kind of an outcast. Like, for instance, in the Massachusetts area, you were going to be a Congregationalist, uh, and if you weren't a Congregationalist, if you were an Independent, uh, one of those awful Baptist creatures, uh, or even a Presbyterian, you were going to be, um, you were part of a, a non-approved group, you were shunned in society and so on. So regional religion was the way of things for, uh, for centuries. Anyway, uh, we're going to get started with chapter 23 now, so let me go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. God, our gracious Father, I do thank you, Lord, for these opportunities to meet and discuss the work of your servant, S.M. Houghton, in writing this, uh, this um, little history of the Christian faith since the time of the apostles. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and to apply these things, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak, and I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, so starting with chapter 23, the Protestants in Germany. In our last four chapters, attention has been centered upon Martin Luther, but before we turn from Germany to deal with the Reformation in other countries, it is desirable to take a further look at events from the Diet of Worms in 1521 to what is known as the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. The Emperor Charles V was checked in his fanatical zeal to crush the Reformation by political intrigue. His dominions were so extensive and his problems so numerous and varied that it was impossible for him to give his undivided attention to German affairs. If only the faithful ally of the Pope had had his hands free, exclamation point, but God rules his church from on high and he makes even the princes of the world subservient to the development of his kingdom since all creatures are so held in his hand and without his will they cannot so much as move. In 1526, the emperor called a diet to meet at spires in which favorable action was taken with respect to the evangelical cause, for religious liberty was granted to all until a council should reestablish unity. How mild, how lenient did Charles V show himself now? The friends of the Reformation rejoiced, the Catholics were chagrined. Three years later... The tables were turned. Another diet was to meet at Spires. Here, the action of the former diet was reversed, and the emperor demanded unconditional submission to the papal yoke. The princes were divided. Six of them, together with a large number of German cities, declared that in matters concerning the glory of God and the salvation of souls, their consciences required them to reverence God above all, and that it was not possible for them to yield to the emperor's demands. Because of this protest, they and their followers were called Protestants. In 1530, the emperor summoned another diet to meet at Augsburg in Bavaria. He himself planned to attend in hope of restoring peace among his subjects through discussion of religious differences. Luther did not attend, for still, he was still under the ban of the empire, and therefore it was not safe for him to leave the territory of the Protestant elector of Saxony. Melanchthon was the chief Reformed theologian present at the Diet, and with Luther's help he had drawn up a series of articles of brief Christ, uh, of belief crystallizing the Protestant position. These articles are called the Augsburg Confession. 
The emperor demanded that the confession should be read to the Diet in Latin. No, said John, elector of Saxony. We are Germans and on German soil. I hope your majesty will allow us to speak German. And in German the confession was read, the result being that the great doctrines of scripture, including justification by faith, were much more vividly presented to the assembled company than they would have been possible in Latin. Now, the king had a reason for asking, obviously, that the, uh, the, the articles be read in Latin. is because uh, he and only uh, a select group, the doctors of the church mostly, would have understood it. Most people did not understand Latin. The sad thing is that they'd been going to church services for their entire life, where the entire uh, order uh, that was spoken by the priest, or if you were, had a bishop or an archbishop there, spoken by him, uh, could not be understood by the assembled mass. And the, uh, in this case, the emperor did not want uh, the articles to be understood by the mass of the people assembled. It was like when the uh, Assyrian king shows up underneath the walls of Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. They're under siege, and uh, he speaks to the people, specifically in Aramaic, even though Hezekiah says, uh, I, I understand your language, don't speak to me. Or rather, he speaks to the people in Hebrew. Uh, he wants them to speak in uh, in Assyrian. I understand your language, let's, let's talk in, in that. And no, I want the people to hear. And uh, in this case, the Protestants obviously wanted the assembled delegates to hear the truth. They wanted to hear the uh, Augsburg Confession. They wanted all men to know, even if they didn't agree, what they believed. So they wanted it uh, spoken in the common German tongue. It was also another evidence of the increasing political independence that the Germans were showing. They, they were tired of being the pawns of, uh, you know, under... Italian religious control and under Spanish political control, the, the House of Habsburg. They're beginning to feel their oats and want their own uh, local independence. Moving on. The whole assembly was visibly moved by the reading. It was made evident to all that the strength of Protestantism lay in its reliance upon Scripture and its requirement that the truth taught in Scripture should be given to men in the languages that they understood and spoke. The Roman theologians claimed that they could refute the confession by quotations from the church fathers, which caused one of the princes, Duke George of Saxony, through an, uh, though, although an enemy of Luther, to reply, Then the Lutherans are firmly entrenched in the scriptures, and we are entrenched outside of them. He stated the matter well. The deliberations at the Diet were protracted, but finally the emperor gave the Protestants until April 1531 to reconsider their position. He believed that under pressure, Melanchthon was at times inclined to yield points to his opponents, and he hoped that this would now happen and that the confession would prove worthless. His majesty was disappointed. The princes refused to give way, and soon they formed the League of Schmalkald in order to present a united front to Charles. But the emperor had no wish to engage in war with them so long as the Turks and the French engaged his armies. Instead, he assisted the Catholic party in Germany to form a league of their own. During the 1530s, the two leagues contended together, but war was avoided. On their part, the Protestants hesitated to engage in hostile acts, where they wished to remain on the defensive, not to take the offensive. The uneasy peace continued until the death of Luther in 1546. By that time, the emperor had inflicted a, a crushing defeat on the French king and thus felt able to take up the Protestant challenge. On their part, the Protestant princes were enfeebled. One of their leaders, Morris, Duke of Saxony, the nephew of Duke George, proved treacherous, and this enabled Charles V to gain an easy and apparently decisive victory. But he soon learned that without the continued use of Spanish troops, he could not enforce his will upon the German people. 
years passed. Resistance to the emperor grew stronger. Finally, the same Morris, an able soldier, turned against him also and almost succeeded in capturing him. By this time, Charles was weary of war and he decided to abdicate. At the same time, 1555, the Peace of Augsburg was concluded. The Peace of Augsburg was based upon the principle of cujus regio, aegis religio, meaning to those uh, whom the rule... And incidentally, if you're a Latin speaker, I apologize. Um, <laughs> I, I never learned how to pronounce uh, Latin. I was not homeschooled. I'm one of those terrible barbarians who was raised in, in uh, uh, private schools and uh, public school. So... And, of course, it ruined me. Anyway, meaning to whom the rule uh, of him the religion. In other words, each prince would determine the religion of his people. If the ruler was Catholic, his people were to be Catholic. If Protestant, his people were to be Protestant. And Protestant in Germany meant Lutheran. Other forms of Protestantism were not recognized by the peace. Now, this is something that the Reformed, the Lutherans are, uh, remember this, but the Reformed often don't. We were persecuted very, very heavily by both the Catholics and the Lutherans uh, within Germany. And uh, indeed, the Lutherans didn't want other Protestants. They certainly didn't want Anabaptists, but they weren't happy with the Calvinists either. So there was, um, in Lutheran circles, Calvinists were considered those nasty uh, schismatics. And uh, occasionally you will bump into some old school Lutheran pastors who, when, you know, they discover that you're a Calvinist, uh, it's almost as though you said you were a Jew. They're happy. They would be happier to, uh, you know. Um, no, actually, much worse than that. Um, uh, if you'd said you were an atheist or some sort of agnostic, they, they're much happier uh, with Catholics and so on. There's a lot of uh, regional um, dislike towards uh, uh, towards different ones. Anyway, so uh, da, 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 da. okay. Um, where were we? This, uh, uh, if the ruler was Catholic, his people were to be Catholic. If Protestant, his people were to be Protestant. And Protestant in Germany meant Lutheran. Other forms of Protestantism were not recognized by the peace. This was one uh, reason for the Thirty Years' War of the following century. But for the first time uh, being, a measure of tranquility descended upon the numerous German states and cities. Germany was at peace, but was divided. But before we turn from Germany to see what happened in other states of Europe, we give stress again to the influence exercised by Luther through his writings in which he expounds the basic principles of the Christian faith. We have already mentioned the weakness of the doctrinal position taken by Erasmus, in whose view uh, men qualified for salvation by their own efforts and attainments, weak and scanty, though those efforts might be in themselves. On the contrary, Luther urged that salvation is and from God through Christ, by the sheer unmerited grace of God. He proved that the will of the unsaved man is a will in bondage to sin, and that the natural man is powerless to do anything to deserve salvation, and in short, that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God who showeth mercy. Casting aside all human subtleties, he showed from Scripture that faith excuse me, is not man's meritorious act and that a full justification from sin, as before God, is of grace and faith alone through Jesus Christ. And in such a view, all the Protestant reformers, and we are about to look at the work of several others, were one, were at one. Differ as they might, and did in certain lesser matters, they were undivided in the belief that the salvation of the soul is the free and sovereign act of the triune God. To his salvation, man contributes nothing. His salvation is of God, through God, 
and to God. That's Romans 11.36. As for Luther's commentaries on the books of Scripture, the best known is undoubtedly that on Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Incidentally, if you haven't read his commentary on Galatians, you really need to. Uh, it was used not just uh, by Lutherans, but it was, uh, it was dramatically used in the conversion of many other men and in their, uh, their Reformation. So, for instance, uh, the Wesleys were both heavily influenced by uh, Luther's work on Galatians, and also um, oh, Samuel Davies used it. Uh, it was one of the books that, uh, in the American colonies, was actually used for the establishment of Presbyterianism within the area. So its stress upon justification by faith alone is uh, absolutely um, wonderful uh, in that sense. There are a few points of which I, you know, we would not agree with Luther, but for the most part, especially in his introduction to the book, uh, it's, it's a tremendous work of evangelical writing. Uh, Many have testified to its outstanding value. Charles Wesley, for example, after being introduced to Luther's commentary by a friend who described it to him as a very precious treasure, writes in his journal, May 17, 1738, I spent some hours this evening in private with Martin Luther, who was greatly blessed to me, especially his conclusion of the second chapter. But the best known of all such commentaries is that found in John Bunyan's Grace Abounding, where in sections 129 through 130, after speaking about his perplexity of mind produced by temptations, he writes, But before I got thus far out of these my temptations, I did greatly long to see some ancient godly man's experience who had writ some hundred, year, uh, hundred of years before I was born. Well, after many such longings in my mind, the God in whose hands are all our days and ways did cast into my hand one day a book of Martin Luther, his comment on Galatians, so old that it was ready to fall piece by piece if I did but turn it over. Now I was pleased much that such an old book had fallen into my hand, the which, when I had but a little way perused, I found my condition in his experience, so largely and profoundly handled, as if his book had been written out of my heart. This made me marvel, for thus thought I, this man could not know anything of the state of Christians now, but must needs write and speak of the experience of former days. I must let fall before all men. I do prefer this book of Mr. Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible before all the books that ever I have seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. And so it comes about when we find men of the 17th and 18th centuries telling their fellows the amazing value of the writings of a Christian of the 16th century concerning the salvation of God, that the scripture is fulfilled. Great is the Lord. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. All right, that's the end. Uh, tomorrow we will be dealing with part five, the 16th century Reformation outside Germany, or not tomorrow, uh, forgive me. Starting on Tuesday of next week, God willing, we'll be uh, dealing, uh, starting part five of Sketches from Church History and, and talking about Ulrich Zwingli in chapter 24 of Sketches. This is the first of the uh, Calvinistic or Reformed uh, reformers, the first of the Swiss reformers, although Zwingli was uh, in some senses more Baptistic, especially in his view of the sacraments than, uh, than, for instance, Calvin and the men of Geneva, but we're beginning to move away from Lutheranism as we uh, hit Zwingli. Jane Walker asks, so does uh, the view that man needs to will himself become a Christian to become a Christian come from Erasmus? No, it doesn't. Actually, you can trace it all the way back to uh, Pelagius, if not Further than that, uh, it is the theology of the natural man. Uh, our inclination is that it is our works 
that um, uh, are what is behind our salvation, that we are the ones who must determine. Pelagius stated that man was born tabula rasa without uh, his will in bondage to either sin or righteousness, that he was a blank slate, that uh, all men had not fallen in Adam, and therefore if we follow the devil, we are damned. If we follow Christ, we are saved, and it's where we are on the line when we die that determines where we go, heaven or hell. So um, it's this is not new. Uh, Erasmus was actually, um, he was following a, a train of, of thinking, and uh, the sacraments and works were necessary it was the teaching of the church that man's will uh, was was absolutely caught up in these things was um, was critical uh, to the the church it's really uh, the rediscovery of Pauline and Augustinian theology that we see in the Reformation that sets free uh, the uh, um, <laughs> it's bizarre the the man uh, the will of man is placed in its proper uh, place in the Reformation that is in bondage to sin and requiring regeneration before faith. So, um, no, but it's not new.